Let's open our Bibles to Revelation 14. In the prayer room, Paul always asks the question, well, what verses do you want me to read? And I said, all of it. He goes, all of it? (laughs) And I says, you have to because it's a three-part Bible study. We're talking about the 144,000. We're talking about three angels. And then we're talking about the harvest judgment. And there are three, actually, we could have three different Bible studies. But um, we're going to try to crack it all out in one morning. So with that being said, and Paul already has, having read it, I'm just going to jump right in. And uh, look at verse 1. And again, this is after the setting of chapter 13, uh, where the Antichrist uh, has been assassinated, comes back to life. Uh, They worship the dragon. He creates an image to the beast and demands worldwide worship, and those who won't worship um, will be killed unless they could get away if they take the mark of the beast. So now, um, as we enter chapter 14, I'm just going to read the first verse, and then I'll explain why. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, the 144,000 in verse 1 can be seen in two different views. Uh, View one, Mount Zion here is on earth. And view two is that Mount Zion here in verse one is actually taking place in heaven. Now let me just tell you, um, some very good Bible teachers disagree on where this takes place. There are people that I look up to in the faith and I find them on two, two different opinions and sides. Some feel very strongly this is just Jerusalem. Others feel very strongly that the 144,000 are actually in heaven. Now, I will not be dogmatic. Therefore, if your view here on where the 144,000 are is different from the view that I'm going to present this morning. So if you go, I don't believe that, that's okay. <laughs> I don't want to be dogmatic because like I said, people I respect very, very much are on different sides of this. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so don't get upset if your view is different from mine. I hold to the belief that the 144,000 here are in heaven and I want to explain and give you my reasons why. Um, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down Galatians 4 verse 26. The context of Galatians is the law versus grace and they cannot coexist together. And Paul, in laying out his argument, talks about Hagar as being part of, um, of the law. And then he throws this verse in, verses Galatians 4, verse 26, and he says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. In other words, you can take that position that there's an earthly Jerusalem, but also there's a Jerusalem above that is, that is free. Turn with me back, if you would please, to Revelation chapter six, a couple pages back. And in verses nine through 11, we're at the fifth seal. And we're told when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and he said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were completed. Now I'm going to come back to chapter 7, first part of it, but I want to go to chapter 7, verse 9, and we find this great multitude. Uh, let's read verses 9 through 17. Now after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, tongues, 
standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, well, who are these arrayed in white robe and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, implying I don't. So I said to him, well, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne and dwells with them. They will neither hunger uh, no more or thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living uh, fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So I'm connecting at this point just people that have been martyred up to the fifth seal. Remember back in the fourth seal, we had one quarter of the earth's population going back that was that took place in the fourth, fourth seal. So now we have some of these in the fifth seal that are dead, and they're told just to be patient until the complete number comes in. Evidently, um, 9 through 17, we have um, those that came out of, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, past tense, or future tense for us. So having said that now, I want to go back and talk about um, the 144,000 because the bottom line is 144,000 we're reading about in verse one is the same 144,000 that we're reading about if you're in chapter seven, verses, um, uh, let's pick it up in verse two. I saw another angel standing from the east having uh, the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So here, I'm not gonna go through them all, but of the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, that's how you come up with 144,000. Now, Let's go ahead to Revelation chapter 13. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to connect some dots here. And um, before I do that, let's go to Revelation chapter 11. I want to tie in the two witnesses along with this. So in Revelation 11, verses 5 through 7, these are the two olive trees. This was actually a prophecy from Zechariah. And I believe, of course, you know, my feeling that, that Moses, Elijah, we know it's Elijah for sure. If you're taking notes, this is the very last thing um, that the Old Testament says. The very last verse of the Old Testament says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord, which we call the tribulation. So it's a no brainer for Elijah. I hold to the opinion because of the miracles that they do that he's one of them. Um, Moses turns uh, the water into wine. At least Charlton Heston did in the movie. (laughs) And so I I believe it is Moses and Elijah, these two witnesses. But my point here as I take you is they can't be hurt. But it's a temporary temporarily holding back. So let's pick it up in verse five. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power 
to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long is their prophecy? Well, we have to go back to verse 3. 260 days, which is another way of saying three and a half years. I believe that uh, they begin the tribulation in Revelation 6, and now we're in the very middle of the tribulation, but there's a set time. You know, the Bible says it's appointed unto time um, that a person dies. It's been appointed unto a man who wants to die, and then the judgment. So you have an appointment, (laughs) and I have an appointment. I hope my appointment is the rapture of the church. I don't know about you. Um, I like that way going out rather than other possible scenarios. But I go here because um, they are supernaturally protected. Nobody can touch them. And if they do, they're they're wiped out. And then it says that they have power over... um, No rain falls in the days of their prophecy, so no rain for three and a half years. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Verse seven is important. Now when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. But, My point that I want to make as it relates to the 144,000, I need you to turn to chapter 13, verse 7. It is my conviction that the reason I believe they're in heaven is I think the same applies to them. Yes, they are sealed, but so were the two witnesses, supernaturally. Here we read in verse 7, that of chapter 13, and it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given over him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So like the two witnesses supernaturally protected, um, I believe that what we have in verse one is the saints, the 144,000 in heaven. I have another reason I hold to this position. Another reason I believe the 144,000 are in heaven at this time is I'm seeing a progression of people that have witnessed for God and I want to begin in the Old Testament. Um, They were to be different from all people. When they came into the promised land, they were not to intermarry. They were to be a cast and set apart from from all of that. And um, they were to be a witness that there's a God in heaven. And sometimes they were successful, depending upon who the king was. Boy, could I get sidetracked here, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, that would have been the Old Testament. Well, when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, we have what we call the church age. Now, when we're done with Revelation, we're gonna go back and start the book of Acts, because that's where we left off. And when we do go back to the book of Acts, we're going to see that the Lord is clearly uh, charging them to be the witness of Jesus Christ. And that he says, wait in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere, don't wait there until you receive power. The word is dunamos. It's where we get the word dynamite from. In other words, you guys can't pull this off on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do and be a faithful witness. Good place for an amen, I think. So we'll be, we'll be going back when we get done with the book of Revelation. But I do see a progression. Old Testament, Israel. Church age, you're the light of the world. You're salt and you're light. We've been given the great commission to be ambassadors for Christ. Interesting thing about an ambassador. You notice um, that right before a war breaks out, a country will call its ambassadors home. Hmm, ambassadors for Christ. War about to break out. I find an interesting analogy with that. And so right now, we are, the progression from Old Testament, New Testament, I believe the church is a witness during this period of time. However, we read in Romans that God is going to once again 
deal with um, Israel. And I believe after the rapture of the church, when the church is removed, it will be the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. And I believe, to a certain point, the 144,000. Here's my point. God always leaves a witness, and when they are taken, we see a new witness that testifies that there's a God in heaven. I like Romans 1, because whether or not people believe, I've heard people say they're an atheist or an agnostic or something like that, and I said, no, you're not. What do you mean you tell me? You can't tell me, no, I'm not. And I said, yeah, I can. I said, because Roman 1 says you're without excuse. You know because of creation that God exists. And you're suppressing that truth down here because if you have to acknowledge that there is a God, then you can't live the sinful lifestyle that your flesh really wants to win. So I don't, I don't believe you're an agnostic. I don't believe you're an atheist because either the Bible's telling me the truth or you are. And right now, I'm picking the Bible. <laughs> and you're a liar and you know that there's a God in heaven. And it balls in your court. So... The progression now is that if the two witnesses are killed and 144,000 are indeed in heaven, um, let's read verses two to five. We left off with verse one. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harp. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, uh, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Uh, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, uh, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God, to the lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As we look at the 144,000, bottom line, one thing's for sure, that this 100, it doesn't say 139,000 or 140, some other number than 144,000, it's exactly 144,000. And as a result, I believe, bottom line, that this 144,000 are the exact same ones that we read back in chapter seven of Revelation. Now, the three angels. And here's the progression that I see. If they are indeed taken to heaven and God always leaves a witness, well, and who's doing the witnessing now? The answer is in verse six. It tells us, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. This next verse I have underlined. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Old Testament, Israel. New Testament, church. Tribulation period up to a certain point, the two witnesses and 144,000. Now we have an angel. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter um, 24 at this time, if you would. And I'm um, not going to get into a lot of this here. Basically, it's an overview of the questions that the disciples ask. Ask two questions What will be the sign singular of your coming and, uh, and of the end of the age? So we have two questions going on here. Um, The singular, I believe, is answered in the parable of the fig tree uh, that says when you see, I believe this is the greatest sign that's out there today as a modern-day miracle, is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And the Bible here in the parable of the fig tree, I mentioned that Chuck Smith actually made a movie about the parable of the fig tree and the rebirth connecting it to the rebirth of Israel in May of 1948. So I believe that's the sign. 
because he says when that happens, all Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. And if you're taking notes, just jot down Matthew 24, 32 to 35. But that's not why I brought you here. I want you to look at verse 14 of Matthew 24. Because we have many things going on here. We have the second coming. We have a picture of the rapture of the church later on in this chapter. But here, one of the things that the Lord says that's gonna happen, because we have the second coming coming up here in verse 27. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to, and there it is, all the nations. And then the end will come. Go back to our first angel in Revelation 14. And looking at verse six, we have an angel who is going to go to every nation. Same word from Matthew 24. Tribe, tongue, and people. And then the end will come. So the whole world, um, even the lost tribes that we work with, the Gideons, and, and um, um, believe they're doing a wonderful job of trying to get the gospel out to every nation that, that they can. Well, this will fully be accomplished um, when this angel makes this declaration. Angel number one. Angel number two. We pick up in verse eight. Um, I, sh- I should read verse seven because it goes with um, uh, the first angel. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now in verse eight, we're introduced to the second angel and another angel fall, uh, followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Turn with me to Revelation 18 and we're just gonna read the first three verses because this gives us much more detail than verse eight of the second angel. It's almost in the past tense, is fallen, is fallen. Now, when we get to 17 and 18, um, it's simply giving information of the time frame that we're still in. In other words, these chapters um, here are going to be a part of the bold judgments, which we'll be studying next week. So 17 and 18 is detail that we're reading right now as we get into the bold judgments. Are you following me with that? Okay, let's just read the first three verses. Um, The reason for its fall. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the great has fallen, has fallen. It's become a habitation of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth had committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through abundance of her luxury. Basically, if Babylon has to fall again in the future, that means it has to be rebuilt. I don't see any place in the world today. First of all, if you go down to um, um, verse nine, this city has to be a port city. And it has to be one of the commercial centers of the earth. Um, Verse 10 says, they're standing at a distance. Um, Alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty one, for one hour her judgments have come and the merchants of the earth will mourn. I did a whole study on this where we talked about Dubai. And my personal conviction is uh, the wealth of the world. I'll tell you something Donald Trump said 10 years ago. They were looking at advice on Wall Street. He said, forget Wall Street, Dubai. You want to invest in something? Invest in Dubai. There's a Trump Tower in Dubai. 
And um, if you want to go back and find that study that I did, it's amazing how this fits together. It has the tallest building in the world. And I started getting suspicious back then because what was the first Babylon all about? The tallest building in the world. And I just started connecting some dots. And again, if you don't share that opinion, that's fine. But they tried to build the ancient Babylon and that came to a screeching halt when Saddam Hussein was taken out. So there's no way that as I look around the world today, how can it be the commercial center in all the world? It has to already exist and be up and running. Largest shopping mall in the world. Eight times, uh, their amusement park is eight times bigger than Disneyland. Um, The richest horse race in the world takes place there. I could go on and on and on and on. But if you're interested in that, we did do a study on it, and you can, you can pick that up. But in, when we get to Revelation 18, it is a very detailed account of um, the judgment and those who deal and dwell with it. All right, back to Revelation 14. And we read... The third angel, uh, verses 9 through 13. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And now again, um, it's another term for the great tribulation period, indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God um, and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow him. Now apparently... Many of God's tribulation saints, and I believe there will be revival because of the two witnesses and 144,000. And they won't take the mark of the beast and somehow they make it through. It says men will be rare in those days. But apparently what's being said here is many of God's tribulation saints of the untold number of Gentiles will be saved during that time are going to lay down their lives for Christ. They will be martyred. And during that time of great tribulation, it will be better to die than to live. At that time, this verse will give comfort and assurance. They will have rest from their sorrows and their works will follow them. In other words, these are the ones that are taken into the kingdom age. And the Lord will reward them. Now, nobody talks about hell anymore. I don't like talking about hell. But my friends, there's no way I can dance around these verses here where it talks about they'll be tormented forever and ever in smoke and fire. I can't take, I don't like that verse, uh, and take it and throw it away. And many churches have. There's a doctrine that goes along with this called universalism. Universalism is simply the belief that everybody goes to heaven. The latest pope has now endorsed universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. I'm scratching my head over that one. I thought, what about purgatory? You got rid of that one. You know? What about eating fish on Friday night? People are doing that. And um, he's completely throwing away Roman Catholicism doctrine. Why is he doing that? Why is he progressive? Why is he hanging out with the Jesuits who have their own agenda? And so what we see in coming together real quick, I have my own personal feelings about this particular pope um, because 
Um, no more purgatory, that's gone. But also, no, no more hell. Don't bother witnessing to Muslims or people of another faith because they're all gonna get there in the end. That's called universalism. Then there's annihilationism. This is a different false doctrine that's out there. And that is popularly held by a lot of people, at least that's their thinking. God is such a loving God that simply when you die, that's it. And you're, it's over. You no longer exist, annihilationism. And um, that's, a, that's a doctrine that is out there today. Let me be clear. When you read Matthew 25, if you read it carefully, he separates the sheep from the goats. And it clearly tells us that the goats will go into everlasting uh, hell. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus is not a parable. There really was a rich man who died and he found himself in torment. And yet he was completely conscious. And the consciousness that he had was for the first time in his life, he was actually concerned for five of his brothers who thought just like he did. And he begged Abraham, who was in a place called Abraham's bosom at that time, would you please, if I can't get out of here and be comforted with some water from Lazarus, then will, will you let him go back? And will you let him talk to my five brothers lest they come to the place that I am right now? You know what Abraham told them? He says, nope. They have what? They have the scriptures. And if they don't believe the scriptures, neither will they believe if one raises from the dead. Isn't it interesting that there was a guy named Lazarus who rose from the dead? What do the scribes and the Pharisees do? They go, oh, oh, we not only got to have to kill Jesus, but now we got to kill Lazarus too. He's a living witness. All he had to do is walk down the street and he was witnessing because everybody knew he was dead for four days. And so um, my, my point with this last one here is apparently... The third angel talks and warns. And my friends, we, we gotta get serious about our loved ones. And um, we're gonna close the study this morning with the exhortation the Bible gives us to watch and see what's going on in our world. And no matter how uncomfortable it is or if you um, find it difficult witnessing, just buy a bunch of God of Wonders. Um, get Dave Hunt's book, on um, uh, how to be a simple book on how to be saved. He leaves no stone unturned. He says, "I just I, I don't have that gift of witnessing." Well, you got a hand, <laughs> and you can hand something out um, to, to anybody—a gospel track. But you don't want that conscience. You want you do not want that on your conscience. If they would die before this period of time without Jesus. Saving them. Good place for it, amen? So in other words, we, we, need, we do need to man up and get our eyes off ourselves and um, on people that don't know the Lord. I was looking out my outdoor window yesterday and I saw my neighbor, nice guy, give you the shirt off his back, but he's not saved. And um, I've gotten my licks in a couple times, but... I work with neighbors differently than I do when I got a one-on-one shot with a person. If I have a one-on-one shot and I'm never gonna see him again, it's a God of wonders. Or How to Get Saved by Dave Hunt. And um, anyway, those aren't my notes, but um, the reality of eternity, um, nobody ever dies. You have a spirit and a soul, and it is eternal. And my Bible says so do the angels. And it says that hell was created for the devil and his angels, but also for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let's move forward to the harvest judgment. Verse 14 through 16. Excuse my little cough. And I looked and behold a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having his head 
on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come uh, for you to reap, for the harvest, and I want you to underline that word harvest here, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in the sickle on the earth and the earth uh, was reaped. Let's just um, uh, stop there. This sickle, well, first of all, the one who's on the cloud is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. The term um, sharp sickle, I'm gonna quote a paragraph from Dr. Newell. His comment on this is a sharp sickle um, establishes thus and speaks of the judgment of the wicked. Dr. Newell calls attention to something that is quite interesting. He notes that the word sickle occurs only 12 times in the scriptures, of which seven are in the verses of this section. Also, the word sharp occurs seven times in the Revelation and four times in this chapter. Uh, I want to look at this little word, little rabbit trail here, not a big one, but a little one, just on the word harvest. So if you would, would you turn to the book of Joel, chapter three, and as you're turning, I find it interesting that we are going to be finishing the book of Joel this Wednesday night, and this is a cross-reference to what we just read. And the cross-reference to what we just read of this harvest is um, uh, chapter three, we pick it up in verse nine. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hook into spears. Isn't it interesting that this is a UN building? Boy, talk about taking something out of context, huh? And let the weak say I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And let the nations be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat is the battleground of the battle of Armageddon. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Pick up the sickle, notice the word there, and the harvest is ripe. So the harvest in this context is a judgment of, uh, that's going to be brought. Come go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish um, their brightness. Uh, so the word harvest here, um, as we'll see this, also occurs in an interesting parable and I'd like to go through that parable. It's in Matthew chapter 13. So let's make our way over there, Matthew 13. And it gave me new insight into the term harvest here. And in the context of what we're going to read, we first need to read the first part of what the parable of the wheat and the tares are, which is um, uh, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. And then we have it explained in verses 36 through 44. So here's a parable of the wheat and the tares. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not know, did you not sow good seed in your field? Why then does it have tares? And he said, an enemy has done this. This is false doctrine. 
along with the true gospel of Jesus Christ that we see in the world today. Um, the servant says, do you want us to gather them up and, and uh, gather, gather them up? And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until what? The harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Uh, Disciples are scratching their head. They wanted to know what he was talking about. So verse 36 through 44 explains the parable of the tares. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away. And he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, the gospel. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Notice, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, a description of what people are actually gonna experience. Um, Wailing and gnashing of teeth is very, very descriptive. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sons in the kingdom of their father. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So um, that's the explanation that is given of the harvest. Let's go back to chapter 14 and we left off in verse now we'll read 17 through 20 it says then another angel verse 17 uh, came out of the temple which is in heaven he also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried out to him who had the sharp sickle saying thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And a winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. I'm gonna come back and comment on that verse, but in the meantime, I'm gonna put something on the screen. And we just talked about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I've had this up earlier. And basically what it is, uh, that is 1,600 furlongs. Megiddo, that's where we get the name for Armageddon. This is where this is the range that it will take place. We're gonna be reading shortly um, in our cross-reference here. I'm just gonna leave this up and uh, you, while, I, while I have you um, turn. First of all, I won't have you turn back to Joel, but I am gonna quote verse 13 again in light of what we just read here in the wine press. So I'm quoting Joel 3 verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Joel chapter three, verse 13. And again, we'll be there on Wednesday night. The great winepress is simply a metaphor for Armageddon. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, and we'll just look at um, verses one through six. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden with dried garments from Basra? All right, what he's referring to here is the land of Jordan, and in particular, 
when those that are, if you weren't here for this study, um, Isaiah 16 tells us this place of refuge is actually Selah, or Petra. And I showed you pictures of Petra and how big it is, and, um, and this is where he is coming from. But here's the interesting thing. From where the battle of Armageddon begins, up in the valley of Jehoshaphat, to Petra is exactly 185 miles, 1,600 furlongs. And that's no coincidence, my friends. So who is this who comes up from Eden, who dried garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garment like the one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. Singular, that's what Jesus does when he comes. And from the people, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garment, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The Battle of Armageddon, I'm going to take you to it, will be there. That's in Revelation 16, so... If you would go there with me, please. I find a very interesting verse. Revelation 16, just a page past where we're in 14. Revelation 16, I'd like to pick it up in verse 12. This is the six-fold judgment. This is the battle of Armageddon. It is the second to last. It isn't the last judgment, which is the bowl judgment, the seventh bowl. What we're reading now is the sixth bowl. But something very interesting is in here. And it's for you and it's for me. Everything else from chapter six to the end of of, uh, the seven-year tribulation period is God refining and breaking down Um, these people that go through this period of time, hopefully so they'll get saved. So we read here in verse 12, the sixth bowl, um, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the waters were dried up by the way of the kings from the east that might be prepared. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For these are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to battle for that great day of God Almighty. I could just go on and read verse 16, and they gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. But notice verse 15. Does that look strange to you for any reason? How many of you have red-letter Bibles? Uh, How many of you do not have red-letter Bibles? Okay, let me tell you what verse 15 is. It's in red letters. Okay, we have not had red letters till after chapter three, which is the church age. There, There will be some in the last couple chapters, 21 and 22. But here, he interjects this statement right before the battle of Armageddon. And the question that comes to my mind is, why? He's he's talking to us now because the letters are read. He's not talking to anybody else except the church. And I find this extremely interesting. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I see this as an admonition. We are the church and we are to be watching. Good place for an amen. Reason we have studies like this, the reason the Lord Jesus decided to put a message to the church, there is gonna be a battle of Armageddon. There is gonna be a seven year tribulation period of time. Nothing in this universe can stop it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word. So now he's talking to us as we see see things escalating exponentially towards the end of 
last days. The nation that sees Israel rebirth will see the fulfillment of all things. My friends, please meditate upon this. Selah, selah, selah. Take it to heart. Watch. Watch for what? Pope throwing out all faults, anything that has to do with Roman Catholic doctrine and becoming a universalist. Watch for what? Um, Powers in play. People like... um, my friend Patrick Woods, his book on technocracy, who's been warning about this for 40 years. In other words, the powers behind um, what's the one world government. I'm talking the, the Rothschilds, the Bilderbergers, the Bill, Bill Gates. They're, these are powerful men. They have a plan. They have a, a, a position. And we need to be savvy on, on how this is coming down. If you weren't here, never heard the name Curtis Bowers before. I strongly encourage you to get Agenda 1, get Agenda 2. And he's been laying this out for us. In doing so, what are you doing? You're equipping yourself. You're equipping yourself to warn people about what's coming down the pike. And uh, we we should not be surprised as we see uh, these things unfolding. But I wanted to sort of leave it with that. But again... Um, people don't talk about sin anymore. Neither do they talk about hell. Here's how we'll close things up this morning. Sin is a reality. David said, I was born in it. You couldn't get away from it because of the fall. Everybody is infected with sin. No exceptions. So sin is an awful thing. Sin is in the world. You and I are sinners The only remedy for sin is the redemption Christ offered when he shed his blood on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. You and I merit the judgment of God. Our only escape is to accept the work of Christ for us on Calvary's cross. The Bible asks a question that even God cannot answer. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you're taking notes, that's Hebrews 2, verse 3. Escape what? Escape judgment. The tribulation is judgment. And the way out is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Some of these things are hard to read, um, but we thank you, Lord, that you've laid these things out for us ahead of time. And so as, as we go about probably one of the last nice days we're gonna have this year, we give thanks for that. And um, we just pray that you would go before us to stay, guide and direct our steps. Lord, give us boldness um, to share the good news with people. We love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.